Morning, Dan. So I feel like probably the question on most people's lips is how was PLSA? It was good. It was good. I mean, I enjoyed it. I had a really good time. Part of it is just, it's become a cliche, hasn't it? But just seeing everyone, a really huge number of people in one space, there's a real energy around it. And yeah, you know, all the little conversations you have sort of spark ideas here and there, and you just get a bit of a sense of kind of where things are at, what other people are talking about, those kind of interactions is what's been sort of missing a little bit. Yeah. So give us a flavor, what kind of conversations you were having? Well, I mean, I saw a lot of listeners, but there's a lot of listeners to the podcast, which is absolutely yeah. lovely. A lot of people saying, hey, a lot of love for the Deb Clark episode, a lot of people mentioning the Stacey Hovener episode. Nice. So it was really, really lovely to every time I, I said hi to listeners. And sorry, anyone, if I was a bit grumpy and trying to run to a session because I was trying to balance my time and get some time in the sessions as well. But it was really nice to interact with, with a lot of listeners. And then there's just so much to reflect on, isn't there, in terms of the macro environment, where we are at the moment, you know, not they're not good things, but it is what it is. And yeah, you know, where pensions are and, and the different trajectory of DB and DC and all these different different things. So it, it felt like quite a timely moment to bring everyone together and, and have, do some thinking about it. Yeah, absolutely. I suppose so. So on a slightly lighter note, did you feel like a celeb? <laughs> I didn't <laughs> with, feel with like a celeb. Being there. <laughs> <laughs> It was great to bump into people, and um, I was I really appreciated people coming up to me and saying hi and stuff. It was um, it was it's really really nice. And and I guess on a slightly well, still not too serious note, but so so you're having all these great conversations. I'm slightly jealous I wasn't there. Did it make you think we should have been recording lots of podcasts around some of the stuff you were talking about? 100% we should have been. Yeah, half the little conversations I was having should have been podcasts. And I think these conferences should have a podcasting studio that can be made available to people. I think some conferences in the US do do that. It's a great idea because we could have recorded a month's worth of content. We could have had some, the people you've got there in terms of the CIOs, some of the economists, the speakers, the authors, it's just would, would have been amazing. There was other people there as well who run their own podcasts. We could done stuff with them. So I think podcasts are the future of everything. So a slightly skewed perspective maybe, but I think it's sort of crying out for, for that to happen in the future. Future, so so we can hope maybe absolutely so it's a, a bit of a watch this space for future live podcast events from future conferences yeah that's it exactly quick one then just before we start the episode i guess just to remind people uh, we've got our summer drinks 30th of june there'll be an invite on on linkedin or just email us message us if you if you want to come along to that we'll be at a pub in marlebone and it'll be great to, to hopefully see people yeah absolutely lots of people already registering interest aren't they so should be good won't just be me and dan chatting to each other sitting on our own in a in a pub so yeah should be good yeah it wasn't a given was it we weren't sure about that we could could, could just have been two of us but no lots of no. our guests have, have said they're coming which is great a bunch of our colleagues so yeah it should be a good mix of people hopefully yeah looking forward to it cool should we get on with the episode let's do it on with the episode welcome to investment uncut in Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. Hi, everyone. This week, we're talking investment strategy. We are talking about the LCP strategic portfolio. Joining us for that conversation, delighted to be joined for the second time by a colleague of ours, investment partner, David Wrigley. David, welcome back. Hello. Thanks for having me back. Hi, David. So I guess last time you joined us, you would have spoken a bit about your role as an investment partner. But I wondered whether you could, I guess, put a little bit more context around why you're with us today in terms of your role on the investment strategy group. I guess one of my favorite roles at LCP is being part of our investment strategy team. 
working alongside a great group of individuals and helping us set guidance for our clients in terms of the best investment opportunities, where we're seeing good value, good investment opportunities, and how to sort of put together a portfolio of assets. I think last time you joined us, you were actually talking about negative interest rates. This is kind of two years ago. <laughs> I know how the world has moved on, hey? Yeah, it just goes to show maybe that will be a weird artifact of history when we come back to and marvel at in <laughs> 10 years. I don't know. But yeah, I think things have changed a little bit since then, haven't they? Absolutely. And I think, David, last time you joined us, of course, we asked you the question we ask everyone about what we should know about you that won't appear on your CV. I think you mentioned that part of your childhood was growing up in Belgium. You can either expand on that fact or feel free to give us an entirely new fun fact about yourself. Yeah, so challenges on to have two interesting facts about yourself. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I guess talking about childhood, I've got three small children, all boys. The youngest two are identical twins. So that keeps me very busy at the moment. Excellent. And do you have a lot of fun with kind of confusing people or maybe they're not quite at the age where they'd have a lot of fun with that in terms of sitting in for each other in various places? Yeah, I'm looking forward to when they're older and you can tell them you've got two children and then just really freaking people out when Mike has <laughs> third identical ones sort of appears <laughs> on the other side of the room as if by magic. Excellent. Well, we'll look forward to hearing some of those stories maybe in a few <laughs> years' time. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, well, let's get into it then. So part of your work in the strategy group at LCP involves work on what we're calling the LCP strategic portfolio. So maybe you can just sort of tee it up for the listeners. What is that? What are we getting out there? What are we trying to do with that portfolio? Yeah, so it's been coming up for just two years since we've been running this piece that we do quarterly called the LCP Strategic Portfolio. And the key aims of doing it are just keeping our clients informed in terms of where we're seeing great opportunities from all of our many researchers at LCP and how those ideas can be brought together in a portfolio. I think it gives people a really good perspective on what others are doing, which I know you don't get a huge amount of if you're sort of a member-nominated trustee on your own scheme, for example. And a great sort of conversation piece with many of the experts we talk to, like professional trustees, in terms of quickly running through all the areas where we're seeing good value. When you come to think about, I guess, putting the strategic portfolio together, of course, every scheme is different. Every pension scheme is different. And that's the focus of the work that you just referred to. If a client is looking at this strategic portfolio, you're presumably not expecting them to churn their portfolio every single quarter. So could you maybe just speak a little bit about, you've talked a little bit about what it is, but maybe talk about what it isn't as well? Yeah, exactly. I mean, we've got so many different clients in so many different circumstances. So the vast majority of our clients won't have the exact strategic portfolio, but it's a great framework for us to showcase investment ideas. In terms of how we sort of look at it, the changes we're making quarter by quarter are quite small. This is for pension schemes with long-term time horizons and not wanting to incur loss of costs. But at the same time, markets do move around. So we have been making changes over time. I was looking back on the first portfolio and looking at the changes we've made since then. And a lot of it has been sort of the sensible stuff you might imagine, like rebalancing, like going underweight credit when credit spreads got super low. And now we've been moving back into credit as it's been going back up to more sort of neutral levels in that marketplace. We'll come on absolutely to talk about some of those specific ideas and changes a little bit later on. I wondered whether David, we could talk a little bit, almost taking a step back in terms of I made the flippant comment, every scheme is different. Are there any sort of principles that you bear in mind when you're thinking about investment strategy that all schemes should be thinking about in a consistent way? It's a fantastic point because obviously an asset allocation is just a snapshot in time. A strategy is so much more than that in terms of where you're heading, over what period of time, and an investment allocation will change over time. Like I said, we've got a couple of strategic portfolios looking at clients in a few different situations, one that needs a higher return, one that needs a lower return. There'll be many schemes along that journey. 
they are aimed at pension funds, are they? Just to clarify on that, DB pension funds. It's a good point. So the strategic portfolio elements that I'm involved in is on the DB infrastrategy team, but we also have DC versions and private wealth versions. And do you find that, because obviously some of those different client types will have quite different objectives and timeframes as well. So as well as, I suppose, you've got an interesting role where you're looking at two different strategic portfolios for schemes in different pension schemes in different positions. How much do you end up seeing the principles vary between those two pension scheme examples and then a DB scheme versus the DC or versus the private wealth? Is it similar sorts of debate that ends up happening or is it kind of DB scheme very much consistent, similar sort of pathway and then actually private wealth, the objectives are so different. I suppose, Dan, I know you're involved in the private wealth example. I don't know whether you sort of see what the DB strategy group do and think, well, this is just not a place to start from because the objectives are so different. Or actually, do you find there's more common ground than perhaps you'd expect from an outsider perspective? I mean, should I jump in first on the DB side of things? And then Dan, you can cover the private wealth. The key difference, obviously, on DB is the hedging side of things. So we spend a lot of time in the investment strategy team thinking about what's the optimum hedge ratio, making sure that all of our clients have hedge ratios in line with what they're expecting, and they're rebalancing those as market conditions change. I mean, generally, we're of the view that being well-hedged is a comfortable place to be for pension schemes and that there are more effective ways of generating return or at least more reliable ways than speculating on where future interest rates or future inflation expectations will go. I don't know, Dan, if you want to cover the private wealth side of things. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's probably two things to say. One is how the objectives might differ, but two is also how the opportunity set differs. Often in private wealth, you're looking at uses funds, daily liquid to be eligible for platforms. We're going to talk hopefully in a second about the opportunity set and the asset classes, but that rules out a lot of kind of direct private markets type stuff that we would have there, although some of it you can replicate in listed form. And then, yeah, on the objective side, you're still anchoring to return a little bit. You're anchoring to risk a little bit, but maybe a slightly bigger anchoring to risk levels than what you would see in DB, which often tends to focus more around what return do I need? And then when you're looking at returns in private wealth, you're often thinking about real returns over the long term, because that's sort of what matters, returns over inflation. Whereas again, that doesn't tend to be the case in DB. So I would say it's probably the restriction over what you can actually invest in that actually creates the bigger differences. It just rules out the direct private market stuff. I mean, should we talk a little bit about some of the ideas that are in the portfolio? And just actually, maybe before we do that, one thing I find really helpful with the strategic portfolio and putting it into an asset allocation is that it forces us to, when we have a good idea, decide what's funding that good idea. And I think that's so easily and so often forgotten when consultant can roll out, well, we've got five great ideas. It's like, well, how do I fit these together and what am I selling? So I don't know, David, if you, as you maybe described to us, what's changed this quarter versus last quarter, as well as telling us what you're buying, maybe tell us what you're selling to in terms of where you're rotating. It's a really good point. And that's exactly why we've chosen to do it in this way in terms of showcasing the ideas from our research team rather than just being a big shopping list of investment ideas to put them in a portfolio. So we've put a sort of saying how much you should have to each of these ideas, whether it's a small allocation, a large allocation, and like you say, where it's coming from. I mean, the key changes we've made this quarter was, this is rolling back to sort of market conditions at the end of March when putting together this quarter's version was topping up Oh, sorry, I'm taking some gains on some of the equity allocation that we've had. We've got within the portfolio or equity allocation is sort of structured three ways, partly in passive equities, where we just see that in most developed markets, equities are fairly efficient. Manager fees can be a drain on long-term returns. So we've gone down the passive index tracking route, but taken some active steps to carbon tilt pad and reduce exposures to climate transition risks. 
And then part of the portfolio is in, we call it synthetic equity protection. Others might call it structured equities, but it's a way for pension schemes to bespoke their exposure to equity markets and perhaps being willing to forego some of the super abnormal gains you might get on equities in return for protecting on the downside. Many pension schemes that we work with will be quite happy with 7 8% per annum investment returns and anything over and above that, they may well have sold anyway on hitting de-risking triggers. And if they're able to sell away the upside, they may never have got for downside protection. That can be quite appealing. We've been reducing the equity allocation a little bit, just sort of banking some of the really big gains that we'd had over time from that portfolio. And we've been going a little bit more into credit with credit spreads widening back out, not towards super compelling valuations, but back more towards sort of historical averages. Whereas for the strategic portfolio and for a lot of the advice we've given clients, it's probably been a bit on the cautious side around where credit markets were. We have a bias within the strategic portfolio towards shorter dated credit, where obviously it's safer to lend money to companies for a shorter period of time. You're less likely to have downgrades as well, which can be a key source of strain on any sort of long-term credit allocation. And that's it back securities where they're shorter dated, floating rate, and with the rise in interest rates that we've seen coming through, those allocations should be a real benefit. So we've been topping up in credit. And we've also taken some gains in some of the real assets space, listed infrastructure and listed property portfolios have done fantastically well. I mean, partly driven by the large returns you've seen in equity markets and some of the inflationary fears coming through as well. So taking some profits there. Just quick ones to clarify. I suppose when you're saying bank some gains on the equities, you're thinking in the biggest picture sense over five years. I mean, obviously, equities were down a fair bit at the end of March, but you're saying a five-year view, they're still up a lot ahead of where they might have been thought to be. We've actually downsized the synthetic equity protection portfolio. So where those equities have been protected, they've performed very well. We're feeling a little bit less in need of protection right now than we were at the start of the year with equities off 20%. And then, like you say, as well, taking a longer term view, relatively, equities have performed quite well, particularly where there's been protection in place compared to credit portfolios. The thing that really strikes me as you just described all of that is, I suppose, using the credit example, as you said, we've got credit spreads having widened, but only really to sort of historically average levels. It's not necessarily a screaming buy opportunity. So I think, again, it just demonstrates why it's helpful to think about this in an overall portfolio sense, because you're sort of saying, well, fine, we'll rotate back a bit. But presumably, we've still got some dry powder here in terms of going further into the credit space if we see spreads continue where they've been going. I think dry powder is a great word to describe how we've been managing the investment grade credit portfolio. So a third of the assets are in investment grade credit, but only 5% of total portfolio is in long dated buy and maintain credit. With that bias towards having some short dated credit, keeping that dry powder, the asset backed securities, like I mentioned earlier. But another area we've got some dry powder is in our LDI portfolio. So we've got about 30% allocated to LDI to provide all the capital that's needed for all our hedging. But of that, we've credit linked a third of it. So used credit derivatives to turn the returns on LDI from cash and guilt like to corporate bond like. And like you say, more dry powder that we could credit link that further if credit spreads were to get to much more attractive levels. Look to take some opportunities there as they arise. Can we just pause briefly on the short versus long dated credit just to make sure that that piece is fully understood? So you mentioned earlier, David, that if you're lending to a company for a short period of time, you might feel like you have better sight of how well they're going to do over that time and you can get more comfortable they're not likely to default. The challenge that's always been put towards the short dated credit idea, I suppose, is the kind of 
different people call it different things, but the sort of role risk, the fact that those bonds are going to mature sooner. So if you want a 20-year portfolio, but you're buying five-year bonds, you're going to have to buy bonds again in five years' time. Can you maybe just describe what gets you comfortable on that basis? What we like to do is have a blend of both longer and shorter dated. Like you say, some of the risks around longer dated credit are lending for someone for a longer period of time, might downgrade, might default. There's a lot more volatility in there. Lending someone for a short period of time, you've got a lot less downgrading default risk, but you've got just a lot of uncertainty around what are you going to be lending them to in three, four, five years, what are market levels going to be? So that almost creates some kind of reinvestment risk. And actually, I mean, a balance of the two is a good way to sort of offset each other because if you're starting to see downgrades or defaults come through on your longer dated bonds, that's a great time to be reinvesting in shorter dated bonds because credit spreads at that time are wide. So we've spent an awful lot of time doing lots of modeling of outcomes in terms of credit portfolios and having a blend of both shorter and longer dated tends to give better outcomes than having just one or the other. It's a good point, isn't it? Because some people find it slightly surprising, I think, when we sort of say, look, we kind of advocate a little bit of shorter dated credit because there's so much kind of, there's almost a knee jerk reaching for kind of matching longer dated credit. But I think a lot of the time, that's not actually a huge driving need for that. I mean, obviously, you've got your liabilities you're trying to match as a DB scheme, but you can do that elsewhere in the iPortfolios. There isn't this huge need, is there? As much as people sometimes think, I think you can challenge yourself a little bit on that to say, well, does it all actually need to be longer dated out so far? Are you creating some sort of weird effects in the portfolio? And I guess that's what we're saying. Maybe you can reevaluate it and come up with a different answer. Yeah, we've never really been big fans of the CDI mentality to pension scheme investing. And we have found that that's led to portfolios that have overly exposed to lots of long dated credit are perhaps volatile to rising credit spreads, are perhaps susceptible to downgrades, defaults. And let's not forget all of these cash flows that are being matched are are only an educated guess at the true cash flows. So having an element of return within the portfolio to act as a good long-term return generator can help you offset any kind of people living longer or any kind of other strains within a portfolio, which perhaps CDI approaches might mean you're more exposed to. So just to jargon bust very quickly, so CDI is cash flow driven investment. And it's particularly, I guess, relevant if you're comparing a typical CDI type portfolio with our lower risk pension scheme portfolio. So David, do you want to just maybe spend a couple of minutes talking about the particular components of our low growth portfolio and maybe how they might differ from what people might see elsewhere? Yeah. So when we first launched the strategic portfolio, we were focused on those pension schemes that had a relatively high return target. So we could talk about a lot of the great ideas we've got in the return side of things as well as the matching side of things. But obviously, lots of pension schemes have low return requirements nowadays and are finding themselves incredibly well funded. So we have a low dependency portfolio as well for those schemes that we need to target sort of gilts plus one type returns, which is a similar type of investment return you might get to investing in a portfolio of corporate bonds. But our approach for doing it is more diversified across a range of risk exposures. So We've taken steps to ensure part of the liabilities, a quarter of the portfolio is in buy-ins. So we're able to take away some of the longevity risk. I think it's probably underappreciated the investment benefits of buy-ins as well in terms of fully matching all the inflation linkages and dealing with many of your cash flow problems. A quarter of the portfolio is in LDI, sort of hedging all the interest rate and inflation risk. And we have 10% of the portfolio in areas that are seeking to generate an investment return rather than trying to match cash flows, so inequities, real assets, and some of the higher returning credit side. And then the sort of biggest part of the portfolio is that investment grade credit piece, but split between 
the longer dated, the shorter dated, having a credit linked LDI side of things and some asset backed securities, just to give a much better blend than if it was just all in long dated corporate bonds. Still a big chunk of credit in different parts of the credit market, but you've got that 10% in more traditional growth assets. And you mentioned just earlier, but just to really, I guess, highlight it. So you mentioned that that's partly to cover things like members living longer to the extent that's not protected by buy-ins you have in place. Is that the driving reason to have that 10% in growth or are there any other factors that sort of feed through to that? The one sort of key principle is that higher returns are better for everyone. Everyone wants higher returns rather than lower returns. And that's going to help the pension scheme over the course of its journey, whether that's to bridge a gap to buy out, whether it's to cope with members living longer, whether it's to cope with some strain on the employer. There's lots of reasons as to why generating higher returns is going to be better. And if it can be done in a low allocation within the portfolio, it's not going to cause a huge amount of volatility in the overall position. It's a good point, isn't it? Because sometimes you can see situations where the mindset sort of develops of, yeah, the aim here is to sell every last equity. And then once we've sold every last equity, we kind of, that's success in terms of having de-risked our, our pension scheme. But I guess your point would be, if you take a broader view of risk and what you're trying to achieve, there is a role there for a slice of return, growthy assets that are just going for returns if you right size it. Exactly. I mean, if you have two and a half percent in equities and equities fall 20 percent, your whole funding level is not exactly being trashed like it is if your pension scheme has got 40 percent in equities. And just quickly, you said that was a gilts plus one portfolio. What's the return target that the other one's built around? Just remind us quickly for the listeners. Gilts plus two and a half. Plus two and a half is the other one. Okay. okay. Fine. And I just wanted to return to that other one just quickly then. So we've talked about some of the big themes. So you talked about equities, credit, what are the other big components of it, just to kind of orientate people a little bit around? I mean, we'll put a link to the actual pie charts and everything, so I guess we don't need to try and visually describe those. But high level, what are the big building blocks that we're looking at there? We break down the portfolio into equities, and I mentioned the equity portfolio a little bit earlier in terms of how that's broken down between having physical equities, protected equities, and emerging market equities. We then have real assets, so that's all infrastructure and property, and again, a split between a variety of different ways of accessing those markets. High return credit, so that's where we have the multi-asset credit, the private credit, some of the more opportunistic investments. And then the investment grade credit piece, which, as I mentioned, is sort of split between shorter dated, longer dated, and floating rates. And then rounding it all off is the LDI piece that aims to fully hedge the funding level. And one of the things we do a little bit differently is we hedge more than the asset base that we've got. We take account of future contributions as well when setting our hedging strategy. So effectively protecting the buying power those contributions will have against the liabilities they're being paid to help meet. I mean, that's a really good way of putting it. Effectively, you're going to get some extra contributions and invest them at some unknown level. Why not sort of pre-buy your hedging now? Could we maybe spend a little bit of time talking about access? You mentioned, for example, when you said real assets, you said there's different ways of accessing real assets. You mentioned, of course, when you talked about high growth credit, there's the private markets approach there as well as sort of public market approach. Is there a general view or are there sort of general guiding principles in terms of liquidity of the overall portfolio and what that means for private versus public and other means of access? Yeah, and that's where we do things a little bit differently between the two portfolios as well. So in the higher returning portfolio, liquidity is less of a concern. There's a long time horizon here. There's a gilts plus two and a half target and investing in private and less liquid investments can go a long way towards generating those much needed returns. So there's a mix between liquid and illiquid assets in each of those areas. For the low dependency portfolio, we're very mindful that, that pension schemes in these positions may want to do 
insurance transactions and may want to eventually buy out their pension scheme and having assets locked up for five, six, seven, eight years can put a strain on that overall journey plan. And just to circle back, I suppose, to the higher growth one, the mix of liquid and sort of listed and unlisted or liquid and illiquid, is that so that you're able to make some slightly more tactical moves between asset classes or is it because there's different value in listed versus unlisted? A bit of both. We see a lot of value in the illiquid aspects of those markets, but obviously that's that's then challenging to ever make any changes and access opportunities or even downsize. So within the real assets, for example, there's both unlisted and listed infrastructure, as well as listed and unlisted global property. And within the higher returning credit side of things, multi-asset credit is one of our more liquid holdings in terms of being able to move in and out of market opportunities. Although that said, the opportunistic managers are obviously making those decisions on, on behalf of us within some of those less liquid parts of the mandate as well. So I suppose the point there is, if you've got faith in that manager to be not dynamic in and out, of opportunities, but I suppose keeping enough dry powder that they can go into opportunities as they arise through the life of that scheme, then you're still able to be opportunistic and your allocations will be a little bit dynamic just through the nature of those funds. Yeah, and that comes on to some of the fee points as well in terms of if we look at the fee spend across the strategic portfolio, a lot of the fees are spent on more of those illiquid assets where we're really paying the manager to do lots of that heavy work and being dynamic and within I don't know, the more traditional sort of side of things like equities and corporate bonds and LDI. It's an area where within the strategic portfolio and across all of our clients, we've been sort of taking a very strong approach in terms of not overpaying. I was just going to go back to the real assets point because I think that's kind of interesting. We have obviously spoken to Andy Jacobson not long ago, did an episode so we can signpost listeners back to that where he kind of, I suppose, did a whole deep dive on that real assets piece and talked through some of the bits there. But do you just want to tick off some of the highlights quickly, David, or just remind people about what we like in infrastructure, for example, property, what those things are looking like, and maybe draw some differences between that and some other approaches that we tend to see? So I'll start on the property side of things. I mean, people might be a little bit surprised to see we haven't got any UK core property within the strategic portfolio. We've instead decided to have a more diversified global allocation to property, which is partly listed to give the liquidity that Mary mentioned, and partly unlisted to get that sort of stability of price, as well as the sort of opportunities that exist there. And then we've also got the long lease property allocation, where we see these as a good alternative to investing in, say, index-linked gilts, where you can get a materially higher yield than what you can on index-linked gilts, positive real yields rather than (laughs) negative real yields in the infrastructure allocation. That's a bias towards the unlisted side of things where we see strong cash flows coming through that are underpinned by some really strong, much needed assets supporting economies all over the world. It's, again, a sort of global allocation to aid that diversification. One of the things that we've not touched on in loads of detail, but you've mentioned a couple of times, David, is inflation, which of course is difficult to get away from sort of reading news articles about inflation at the moment. And presumably that did factor into your thinking in March, because even in March, we'd seen pretty high levels of inflation. Are there any particular parts of the portfolio that you are, I guess, particularly comfortable or particularly concerned about in light of the levels of inflation that we've seen in the last few months? Yeah, I mean, one of the areas that we're particularly comforted by is the high hedge ratio that we have in place fully hedging the funding level plus those future contributions that will be coming in to changing them both interest rates and inflation. Obviously been a very good decision in terms of having that bad inflation protection and something that we've been incredibly dynamic in terms of managing because 
many pension schemes have caps in place. And with inflation being very high, many pension schemes have burst through those caps or more likely to hit them. So we've been actively managing the inflation hedge to take account of that within the portfolio. I guess areas where we'd be more concerned in terms of high inflation, at least, would be on the equity side and what the response might be to that higher inflation. If we see interest rates needing to rise to levels that might be uncomfortable for some businesses and towards levels that would make valuations for some businesses look quite stretched. And that's been one of the main reasons sort of driving down the equity returns over that year. And one somewhere we've been happy to have the protection in place to provide a meaningful level of protection to many of our schemes and within the strategic portfolio. On the inflation front, presumably that's part of the whole logic for having the real assets piece there in the first place is to address a high inflation, rising inflation type environment as a little bit of a counterbalance to relying solely on listed equity markets. It's been something we've been very conscious of for a long period of time. I think it was going back six months ago, we did a whole sort of piece in the portfolio just thinking about what happens if we do get some higher levels of inflation. How is it going to impact on all areas of the portfolio? And we felt that having some real assets in there is helpful, not having too much in terms of long-dated credit where if we're going to get some rises in interest rates, that would become pretty uncomfortable for some of those valuations, having more floating rate credit if interest rates are to rise, making sure we've got enough capital in our LDI's portfolio to support any interest rate rises that might come out of rising inflation. So we've been very keen to stress test the portfolio, making sure that we're not overly exposed to high inflation or high interest rates as a consequence. The key final area I was keen to discuss with you is looking forwards, what you are most worried about in markets. I realise we've just had a few minutes talking about inflation, but big picture, what do you think could throw things off course from here? I think it comes back to that rising interest rates piece. We're very conscious that we need to have enough collateral within our LDI portfolio to support any interest rate rises that might be forthcoming. I'm very conscious of knock-on impacts that could have on market valuations, particularly those very long-dated equity allocations that I think a lot of the valuations in the US for some of the FANG stocks, for example, have been driven by very low interest rates and high growth dynamics there that can suffer from rising interest rates and likewise protecting our credit portfolio from having some shorter dated bonds and some floating rate securities. You've given us a real whistle-stop tour of the strategic portfolio, how to use it effectively and some of the key components to it. What's the one thing that you'd like listeners to take away from today? Could I have two? <laughs> oh, and then. All right. <laughs> you might be pushing your luck because you've already had two things that are interesting to know about you. I'm sure, if you like that, oh, yeah, you're but he does to have to win. Away, so. Yeah, true, yeah. <laughs> I think the two things that I really want to get out is having just that diversified portfolio, making sure that it's well balanced between a variety of risks. But then also, I think just being dynamic, making sure rebalancing portfolios and being proactive, I think, can add lots of value in investment strategies. And David, what do you think is the most underappreciated thing about investing? I think it probably comes back to that rebalancing point. It's perhaps not that underappreciated because lots of people do rebalance portfolios, but being aware of those opportunities, having access to how your assets are allocated, what's overweight, what's underweight, how you're doing versus your own targets and taking advantage of opportunities to be dynamic and making sure you're actually doing the rebalancing you say you're going to do. Alternatively, you could add something on, I mean, buy-in as perhaps an investment that's underappreciated in terms of its investment qualities. I think people think about buy-ins as being longevity hedges, but they're fantastic investments in terms of matching cash flows, matching all the inflation complexities within pension scheme liabilities. And I think some of the investment benefits of buy-ins are perhaps underappreciated.
So I think we'll let you have all of those things on the basis that <laughs> the rebalancing one crossed both questions. So you sort of got one and a half on each question. I think that's probably all right. Don't you think, Dan? It's like almost this twins theme. It's like back to that point we were making at the start. <laughs> is it one or is there secretly two there? It's <laughs> going the whole way through the episode, I like it. Absolutely. Great. Okay. And David, final question. Do you have any recommendations for the listeners? The book I'm reading at the moment, which I've been really enjoying, is a book by, I don't know how to pronounce it, but Yuval Noah Harari. So I'm reading Homo Deus at the moment, which is the follow-up to Sapiens, which I found really inspiring and a really good read. Fantastic. That is on my bedside table, ready to be read, but I haven't quite <laughs> managed to open it yet. I did love Sapiens. It's amazing how like the whole of humans being the sort of dominant animals is all based on their ability to make things up, which is <laughs> a good concept. That's how we all have jobs though, isn't it? As consultants. <laughs> <laughs> A comment. <laughs> it is one of those books that ends up on a lot of bedside tables, I think, because it's sort of metaphorically on same for me as well. I don't know why. If everyone thinks they should read and probably wants to read, but maybe struggles to get the time to focus on. But it sounds like you've got one into it, David, and you've cracked it. So that's good. Brilliant. All right. Well, it's been a great conversation today. I'm sure it's a topic we can return to hopefully again in the future as we evolve the thinking on this strategic portfolio. But for today, David, thanks very much for your time. It's been a great conversation. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks both. Thanks, David. That's it from us this week on Investment Uncut. But join us again next week for another episode. Take care. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.